It's often said about graveyards that when we walk through them, the stones speak to us. They don't actually, of course. But this anthropomorphized idea of what tombstones do is really not that inaccurate. In reality, epitaphs are what is really compelling about tombstones. Sure, the stone is remarkable, the carvings can be beautiful, but it's what the tombstones say that more often than not pull people in. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So this is one that I've had rattling around for a while, and I still confess I'm not quite sure exactly how it's going to go. Because I don't want to just read you a list of epitaphs. It's one of these more nebulous ideas that I think needs to be talked about, but don't always know how to approach it. When I went to the books on this one, really the way that most books seem to handle epitaphs is exactly the way I described. There's a list of unusual or funny or touching epitaphs. So I started to think about when I have done live tours, what I say about the tombstones. More often than not, what I do is I take a look at them and I consider what they are telling me about the person. Or more importantly, what the tombstone has to say in terms of the larger cultural experience. Certainly a tombstone from the Victorian era is going to have an incredibly different tone than one from, say, the Puritan colonial era. And all of these have a very different tone than their ancestors. So while I always try to focus on American cemeteries, to really talk about epitaphs, I have to go back further. Because when we talk about memorialization, you have to use words for that. And so no matter how far back we go, epitaphs have existed. All of this to say that when we consider epitaphs, they are part of a larger cultural experience, part of a larger cultural ideology. So how far back do we have to go? In this case, it really goes back to basically the first written forms of language that we have. The memorialization ideology. It certainly goes back to the Fertile Crescent when we talk about those places. But the first place that we see this large scale is Egypt. Almost all of us have probably seen some form of Egyptian funerary art. If you have seen a sarcophagus in a museum hieroglyphics, the engravings on them, are epitaphs. The term epitaph is Greek in and of itself. So, like many funerary-related terms, it goes back to Greece. The same way that the word cemetery derives from Greek, so does the word epitaph. And it's a combination of two words. Epitaphos, which is technically a funeral oration, and then the taphos part is always funerary, so it means tomb. I think it's interesting because, to me, epitaphs are very different than a funeral oration, a eulogy, whatever you want to call it. And the reason for this is, first of all, brevity. Aside from being the soul of wit, it's just not practical to have a huge amount of writing. So you have to condense what would be said in a funerary oration or speech into something that is short and very memorable. 
So the same way that one-liners are the way to go with comedy, more condensed ideas in epitaphs seem to be the norm, at least today. This was not originally the case. If we're going to really look at epitaphs, you have to start with Rome. That's not to say that there were not extensive epitaphs before then. What the deal breaker is that really changes the game for epitaphs in Rome is the fact that almost everyone in Roman society had an epitaph of some type. They had a tomb, even though cremation was very common. In Rome, whether you were part of the plebeian class or whether you had wealth, you were memorialized all the same. Perhaps it was more simple. But if you look at examples of Roman epitaphs, you can see them for a very wide variety of individuals. So with the previous civilizations that existed that we have remaining funerary tablets, whatever they may be, they most often are only for the nobility. It's really frustrating because then you don't really get to use them and you really can't look at them as a cultural touchstone in the same way that you can with Rome. I wouldn't say exclusively that, you know, Roman epitaphs are the most important. It's just, first of all, we have a lot of them. Second of all, they really run the gamut so you can get an idea of just how common things were and were not. So looking at Rome, let's consider a couple of things. So to begin with, epitaphs were generally addressed to manes, M-A-N-E-S, who were spirits of the dead that resided in and around tombs. They also start to use abbreviations. This is something that carries over and is still used today. So RIP, rest in peace, is probably the most common. But that comes from Latin, requisite impacum. So a lot of the things that we have tie back to these Roman traditions. So we can really look to Rome as the foundation and the model for modern epitaphs. So some of these abbreviations, a couple of examples. So DM, Dismenibus, Vixit, he, she lived is abbreviated as Vix, Anus for year. If you went to Catholic church at all, you probably have seen a lot of these already abbreviated. And in churches, you will often see terms, which are at this point archaic, which have been abbreviated in the exact same way. Now, Roman tombs, if you have spent any time in and around Rome, and I use Rome because obviously it is the epicenter of the empire, and it's worth noting that the majority of funerary tablets that we do have from Rome are actually from the imperial period. Very few survive from the era of the Roman Republic, and if you know anything about the progression of things that happen in Rome, that makes a lot of sense. So... What they did was they buried generally outside the city walls for sanitary purposes. Cremation was the norm, but it was cremation in the same sense that we have today where they used a columbarium. Indeed, the term columbarium comes from the Latin word for dovecote. So what they would do is they would inter ashes outside the city of Rome along the Appian Way 
APN to Appian Way, um, which also was the name of quite a delicious pizza mix that uh, we used to use when I was a kid. Uh, I don't believe they make them anymore. But so this area, this sepulchral area, was outside the city, and you can still visit many of the catacombs outside of Rome today. They still exist. This is where the Christians first practiced. Tombs were very easily recognizable because their epitaphs were written using red pigment. This lettering also, it's, it's worth talking about because if you are interested at all in inscriptions on headstones, this is also where Rome comes into play. So the Roman lettering, certain types of it, so for example, the Trajan font, this is the model for all lettering after it. The Romans are considered to have perfected this. So these lettering forms, which are still used today, so think about something like Times New Roman, which obviously I know doesn't date back to Rome, but these traditional lettering fonts and ways of forming letters, and these are mostly um, letters with serifs on them, it really dates back to Rome. In a previous life, when I was a teacher, I taught at a classical school where all of our children studied Greek and Latin. And I remember our art teacher, he did a whole section of the year where he taught his students how to write in the Trajan font with paint. And there were certain hand motions to make them. And those who still practice traditional lettering techniques on headstones, they are never going to run out of work. So when you talk about places like, say, the John Stevens shop in Newport, Rhode Island, which is the longest continuously operating headstone manufacturer in the United States, the shop dates back to 1705, when you look at their lettering forms, the way that they are made, this is the reason that they are chosen for things like the Kennedy grave at Arlington, the reason that they have done the lettering on things like the World War II Memorial. Those type of traditional fonts are still considered to be the peak in terms of design, in terms of artistic basis, all of these things. So the lettering on these tombs is still studied today. It is still a huge part of this. And it's interesting because you can actually read quite a few academic papers that talk about this. They talk about the epigraphic habit, the honorific culture, the obligation to commemorate. There are a lot of terms that they use for this impetus, which dates back to obviously before Common Era significantly, but the whole trend results and culminates with Roman inscriptions of which I have read that there are hundreds of thousands possibly of these that still exist. Now, the question is, how do we know this? And it's very interesting because there is actually an entire program that is dedicated to this. So the U.S. Epi Epigraphy Project, Epigraphy, not an easy word to say, which is currently based out of Brown University. So this was started in 1995. It was founded by a man named John Bodell, who is still the director of the program. At the time, he was at Rutgers in New Jersey. And he started this, his goal was to collect and share information about inscriptions in both Greek and Latin, which are the primary languages. There are some others which were also used during the period of the Roman Empire, which were in Mediterranean and American collections. So basically he wanted to reach out to these museums who had these 
in their collection, take inscriptions, translate them, and create a collection where you can search them for different terms and trends. It was moved to Brown University in 2003, so eight years after it formed, and it still exists there today. In that time, they have collected 3,500 inscriptions, ranging in dates from 800 years before Common Era to about 700 CE. Now, as I already said, this covers both, well, to a degree, the Republic and the Imperial period of Rome right up until that sharp decline. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why the end of Epi epigraphy is really important in terms of understanding trends over time. So of their collection, 2,200 are in Latin, 850 are in Greek, 41 are in Cypriot, 29 are in either Punic or Phoenician, and 22 are Etruscan. So even within the empire, and obviously we know this, due to the size of the Roman Empire, you have a range of languages and these inscriptions tend to fall into different categories. We know that Latin was the one language that was carried throughout the different parts of Rome, and that obviously is the most common, but there are others in different local dialects. So not only do you have this tradition, not only do you have a large body with which to draw from, and there are a lot more out there in the world that have not been added to this catalog. But as I already said, you have a wide variety. And it's fascinating to read some of these because many of them are quite detailed. It's generally acknowledged that the longest of these classical epitaphs um, does date to the Roman period, and that is the Laudato Ture, which is the longest known Roman epitaph at 180 lines. It celebrates the virtues of an honored wife of a Roman council. You can have some that are just a line or two, some that are anywhere in between. So the majority of them do talk about the profession. So this is one of the reasons that we know that common people as well as wealthy individuals were all getting their epitaphs after they died because we can tell just based on what it says about the individual. One of the things that really set me on this journey was a few months ago, I was in Minneapolis and I was at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And when I was there, I was quite fascinated by their collection of funerary art. And I actually had posted a few pictures on social media. I know I posted a picture of the giant lobster coffin from Ghana, for example, but they had a Egyptian sarcophagus and they had a number of other cultures, which I confess I know less about. No particular reason, but for me in world history, the deep history of the Far East just never interested me. It's nothing against it. I know it's very complex. It's very interesting. Their contributions to art and to science are, are immense. Just not something that ever interested me. So one of the most interesting things that I saw, though, were these epitaph covers. And so the epitaph cover that I saw was um, for Yuan Mi, who died in 524. And it was a black limestone square tablet. And you could still see on the corners there had been metal handles to lift it with, sort of like they do with modern concrete burial vaults. And this epitaph cover was from Northwest China in the Henan province. 
and it was beautiful. I mean, the imagery on it was really striking because, and I, as I was reading about it, I learned that it was because it was a combination of different cultures. So you had Buddhist and Confucian and Taoist imagery all together on this. And then across from where they had the tablet, they also had his sarcophagus. And so it goes into the history of him, how he was related to the emperor, his deeds, all of these things. While it was fascinating because I didn't know that much about it, it was another example, though, of one of these that was really high level. This was a wealthy member of the nobility, and that's why this tomb still exists. And when I started to dig a little bit more into this, because I was interested in these older Far Eastern epigraph tablets, it was interesting because I found another one at the Met for Oh My Kong Hang, who lived from 1673 to 1728. This was really interesting because this was a completely different medium. These were sets of ceramic tablets, and I believe that they generally came in sets of 12 to 14. And these ceramic tablets are interesting because even though this individual was Korean, and Korean was a developed language at the time of his death, it had been in existence for over 300 years, epitaph tablets are written in Chinese which was the official language of legal documents. So even the language that some of these epitaphs is printed in, even the language that's used, tells you something about the culture. It was also interesting to me to learn that they used either iron or cobalt oxide for their text, so blue was the preferred color. A lot of the impetus for memorialization you know, documenting family connections, documenting biographical information, achievements, all of that stays pretty consistent throughout different cultures. But the materials that they use, the different mediums, the different languages, that's what's very interesting to me because it also reveals a lot about the culture at the time. Now, what starts to happen to epitaphs, though, is also a direct result of cultural changes. So after the fall of Rome, what happens in the medieval period, what's known as the early Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, depending on who you talk to, is that epitaphs almost completely disappear. And I think that this is a very logical slow slide. Again, if you remember your world history, you remember that things got pretty dark pretty quickly. When your world is constantly at war and you have to worry about your very small keep being overrun by Visigoths, etc. Things don't go so well. You don't have time for the frivolities. And I know I talked about this a lot with the development of slate headstones and how when you look at the early period of Puritan burials, they don't exist. This is something that takes a significant amount of time because when you are just trying to scrape by, you're trying to eke out and stay alive, no. You don't have time for art. Art is one of the privileges of leisure. It's one of the privileges of success. And so you have very few until you start to get into sort of the, the high Middle Ages. That's not to say that there aren't some significant examples. But what happens again is that it's only the mo nobility who are having these. Another big impetus is 
the creation of effigies. You have a lot of folks who go away, who fight in the Crusades, who die in the Middle East, and they are given effigies because their bodies are never returned to their homeland. So you can certainly find famous examples of this, particularly in the UK. Um, probably one of the most famous, when I was looking through trying to find a good example, is the um, tomb of Rosamund Clifford, who, if you remember your Shakespeare, she was the mistress of Henry II, well, more so than Shakespeare, your English history. And she died in 1177, and her epitaph says, In this tomb lies Rosamond, the rose of all the worlds, the fair but not the pure. I mean, poor fair Rosamond. That's a, that's a rough way to be memorialized, but uh, I think that she probably should have taken a bit of pride in her sluttiness. I mean, we're still remembering it now, well over a thousand years later. So there's something to be said for a real good zinger of an epitaph. So this memorial instinct doesn't go away. It's just the creation and the flourishing of this doesn't necessarily continue. That being said, you have sort of a continuity and by the time that we get to the Renaissance, things have picked up again and then they never really let off. I will say, depending on the culture that you are talking about, there is a wide range. Again, the wealthy tend to almost always have epitaphs. And just like the example that I gave of the difference between Korean and Chinese when used for official documents and for these sepulchral monuments, you see the same thing. Where Latin is continuously, despite the fact that we're multiple centuries out from the fall of Rome. Latin continues to be the language of the educated. It is the language of the church in particular. So you see a lot of Latin continue to be used as opposed to local languages. And again, if you remember your whole story about things like the Gutenberg Bible, Cyril and Methodius, all of these folks, sort of the break between educated scholars in an era when, quite frankly, not a lot of people were literate. And the language used by the common people was a really wide divide. So this doesn't happen right away. This is something that trickles down. And so by the time that we start to have headstones that are written in local languages, again, you start to see cultural shifts that go along with it. I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to talk about a couple of my favorite headstones. And they are not in the U.S., but I think that they start to show a shift in ideologies that is really important. And I'm going to get to the U.S., and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. I'm going to cheat a little now, and I want to talk about a cemetery that, quite frankly, I think has some of the best headstones around at least a few individuals, and there's a good story behind it, so it's worth telling. So I'm going to be talking about the Protestant Cemetery in Rome. Now, it's generally known as the Protestant Cemetery. It was essentially the non-Catholic burial ground. So it's a private cemetery in Rome, and it is built up around the Pyramid of Cestius. If you go there, it is very prominent. It's kind of hard to ignore, it really is a mecca, particularly for the English that lived there. 
and a couple of the individuals I'm going to talk about fall into that category. It's not just for English people. It was a private cemetery that was open to all. But the big thing was is if you were an expatriate who was living in Rome at this particular point, and by that I mean the 18th and 19th century, Keep in mind, this is also the time period when there is an increased interest in classical culture in general. You have young men who are traveling to Greece, to Rome, to all of these places on their grand tours, particularly wealthy young men. You have a lot of interest from musicians, from artists, from architects, all who are studying classical sculpture, architecture, all of these things. If you've ever taken an art history class or an architectural history class, you will definitely see these examples, these grand sketches of Roman ruins. All of this is just a fascination that people have at this time. When this occurs, you also have people who die because guess what? In the 18th and 19th century, odds are you probably were going to die. So we have a couple of individuals who are these wealthy, cultural British men who come to Rome and die there. The first being John Keats. Now, you probably remember John Keats, and if you have been listening for a long time, you can go back and listen to the episode that I did where I talk about cemetery poetry because Keats features very heavily in that particular one. So Keats is one of the romantics. Again, you probably covered these at some point in your high school English literature class who they were very interested in a lot of things. And I think a lot of the things are fascinating because they actually overlap very heavily with cemetery culture. That romanticism, that idealized landscape, the picturesque, all of these will be the tenets that really shape the rural cemetery movement. The idea of using Greek and Roman and Gothic follies, these picturesque ruins that people would build on their property. The use of these classical styles in rural cemeteries. All of this stuff ties together. It makes sense that these guys would have some of the best epitaphs. So John Keats dies in Rome in, 18, in February of 1824 at the age of 25 of tuberculosis. Again, the most, even though this is not really the Victorian era yet, you're going right into it. But the most romantic of deaths, slowly wasting away, coughing yourself to death. So he dies of consumption and has the best epitaph. So his epitaph reads, This grave contains all that was mortal of a young English poet who on his deathbed, in the bitterness of his heart, at the malicious power of his enemies, desired these words to be engraven on his tombstone. Here who lies one whose name was writ in water. There is some angst, if ever you have heard it. But it's memorable. First of all, because it doesn't include any of the things that most of us think belong in an epitaph. So, for example, the things that we all expect to be in an epitaph are your name, the day you were born, the day you die. Now, birth date, that is a more modern thing, to be fair. Death date was much more common. But none of those things are included on Keats' headstone. Now, with that zinger at the end, here lies one whose name was written water, it's memorable. People knew who was buried there. But the real question is, is this all BS? 
did he really say on his deathbed that that's what he wanted? So it's very interesting. So two of his good friends, Joseph Severn and Charles Armitage Brown. And Charles Armitage Brown, I should note, was also the one who wrote like kind of the definitive biography of Keats at the time. They were with him when he died and they claimed to have done all of this. They claimed that they were carrying out his wishes. And they all said that this was a conversation he had in the days leading up to his death. However, in the next few years, they kind of confessed that they maybe fudged the details a little bit. Um, eventually, Joseph Severn, in a letter, wrote uh, on July 13th, 1836, quote, The present gravestone is an eyesore and more. Charles Armitage Brown later came out and said that the tombstone was a sort of profanation. I'm not going to lie. As far as hoaxes go, it's top notch. Because it's memorable. The fact is, you could not have given him a traditional Christian burial that would have been more memorable. Granted, he had a great deal of success in a short lifetime. He died a very tragic death, but keep in mind that tuberculosis was the leading cause of death in the 19th century. In many ways, I think it only makes him more memorable. Is it definitely jerking people around and spitting in the face of traditional christian glowing angels playing harps epitaphs absolutely doesn't make me love it any less so this brings me to his neighbor another man who you've probably heard of percy Bysshe shelley so shelley actually dies right around the same time and i i confess i know i gave you the wrong date before so i'm going to correct myself right now so john keats dies in 1821 i think i said 1824 because i can't read my own handwriting so he dies february 24th 1821. the following year in july percy shelley who is equally known as being a very successful poet himself as for his wife mary shelley wrote a little book called frankenstein you've probably heard of so he drowns he drowns in the mediterranean supposedly he dies with a volume of Keats poetry in his pocket. Again, you cannot make this stuff up. And so when his body is finally found, and I remember I read a pretty good book about this years ago, and it was called The Monsters. And it was all about the relationship between Shelley and Keats and Lord Byron and Mary Shelley, all of these other people, um, Dr. Polidori, who wrote The Vampire, which was the predecessor to Dracula. It was all about their ideology and how things worked and the very tragic deaths of the majority of these individuals at a young age, with the exception of Mary Shelley. She was kind of the last man standing, so to speak. So Percy Shelley, he drowns. He's found with a volume of Keats in his pocket. And he supposedly is cremated right there on the beach. I'm sure you true crime aficionados know it's not easy to cremate a body. So I can't even imagine what this process looked like because supposedly Lord Byron and Edward John Trelawney cremated him right there on the beach. I have read this a number of places. Again, I find it hard to believe, but apparently that's what happened. It was also 200 years ago, so it's kind of hard to tell. But so he was, and actually now that I think about it, the anniversary of his death just passed a few, few weeks ago. So we are, we are right at the 200-year mark this year because he died in 1822. Regardless. So supposedly they cremated him with the exception of his heart, 
which they thoughtfully mailed to his wife. Supposedly, Mary Shelley, his widow, kept it in her desk. You can't make the 19th century up. Keep in mind, I've talked about the transcendentalists who definitely had their own weird thing going and how, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, after his wife died, wanted to go back a year later and open up her coffin to see her again. People in the 19th century did some weird, weird stuff. So supposedly she kept it in her desk, wrapped up in the manuscript of Adonis, which was Shelley's elegy that he had written for John Keats. You see why I'm telling you these two stories together, because they are so enmeshed. So after her death, her son had the heart encased in silver. Can never be too extra. So this happens in 1889, where he takes it to Rome and it is buried in Rome. And on his headstone, which is very near Keats, first it says Corcordum, heart of hearts in Latin. And then below that, a quote from the Tempest, quote, nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. If ever there was a rich and strange in the world of epitaphs, it is these two. So I thought I would share those stories because they are poets, they're over the top, and they're actually quite interesting because you get a little bit of the ideology. You get what they are trying to communicate. And certainly quotes, particularly biblical quotes, are very popular. And at some point, I've had it on my list forever, I want to do an episode about the Bible and cemeteries. You don't necessarily have to believe it, but it does dictate so much, not just about what's on headstones, but the way that cemeteries are designed. So somewhere down the road, you have that to look forward to. When we talk about the United States, we have to start with the Puritans, of course. Now, if you go back to the very roots of this podcast, if you have heard me talk about the Puritans at all, you know that their headstones are a communication of their worldview in a huge way. The Puritans, with their Calvinistic worldview, lived in a constant state of fear. So Calvinism, in general, believes in predestination. It believes that before we are born, God knows everything. He knows what our ultimate end will be. He knows whether we are going to heaven or hell, and there is nothing that you can do to change that. Or is there? So not knowing what you are predestined at, trying to live within God's law, there is this constant sense of fear. And that is where Memento Mori comes in, the graveyard is a constant reminder of the slow decay of death, of corruption, of sin. The tombstones tell that story. So they are very dark. They are very warning in many ways. A reminder of the decay, a reminder of the death. By the time we get to the Victorian era, it couldn't be more different. And again, if you are a longtime listener, you know that the ideological shift from the Puritan burial grounds to things like rural cemeteries, it doesn't happen overnight, but rather is a slow climb towards this ideology. And a lot of it has to do with the reimagining of cemeteries themselves. The term cemetery, a sleeping place, the return to nature, 
All of this is governed by religion in the form of the Second Great Awakening, a change in the ideological view of the afterlife as a return to nature. And the epitaphs that we see are definitely a reflection of this. Now, this is a good time to kind of talk about the universal things. So I already briefly mentioned this with Keats, but so name and often full names, but often you also have things like familial relations used in lieu of a name. So Sarah, wife of John Brown. So familial relationships are a huge thing. And that is something that you can see even today, though they are generally phrased differently. So beloved wife and mother, as opposed to Sarah, wife of. Sarah, daughter of. That patronomic does start to go away a little bit more with modernity, but those familial relationships or lists of family members still continue. Those ideas are pretty universal. And like I said, we can trace this all the way back to the Egyptians and the Phoenicians. This is nothing new. The other stuff. This is really what changes. Whether it is prose or poetry whether it is a biblical quotation, whether it is an aphorism, whether it is a moral warning, whether it's a joke. I'll talk a little bit about jokes in a minute. All of this shifts over time. Cause of death is sometimes included. These are particularly interesting. And almost every cemetery podcast, they probably at some point have done a cause of death type episode. All of these things kind of draw back to the central idea that these tombstones are supposed to speak. They're supposed to tell a story. And I confess, it's not as easy as it looks. And I just went through this because I had to pick out the epitaph to put on my grandmother's headstone. And faced with the daunting and, quite frankly, pricey amount of money I was going to have to spend, I had to keep it brief, but I also had to say something that really meant something. So how do you do that in just a few words? It's not easy. And I confess, I wasn't going to be satisfied with, you know, loving mother and grandmother. I, I didn't want that. So I had to think a lot about what was going to be those few words that I chose. Now, when we talk about the Victorians, and to be fair, the Puritans before them, brevity was not the soul of wit. So I kind of went through and looked at a few favorites I had. So I pulled this one, which I happened to see, oh, I don't know, about a month ago. I was walking through Oakland here in Atlanta, and I had just gone to an event. They just rededicated the African-American section there. And this one caught my eye on the way out. So I really liked this. Here is the place, the lone pilgrim's rest, not one left to mourn. But in a soft whisper, something will say, how calmly we rest here alone. Oh, come on. The Victorians. You got to give them credit. So a lot of this is ruminations on death, ruminations on the realities of death. A lot of them are talk about virtues. Virtues are very big, both in the imagery that's used. So the imageries of innocence, the images of purity, all of these things, they bleed over into the values that are expressed in epitaphs.
in the modern day, I think that people have gotten away from that again. So you have like the mid 20th century when it's just fact-based, just name, birth, death. You don't see a lot of really catchy. It's almost the death of the epitaph again. But then as you start to get into the modern day, what I have seen is that there is actually a leaning more towards creativity, funny things. Um, you know, there are some that are often repeated, you know, the kind of hacky one, I told you I was sick. But the idea that you can take your persona in life and it can spill over into death. Um, certainly celebrities have a lot of popular ones. So Jack Lemon, um, most famous for The Odd Couple, of course, among many, many others. You know, so his headstone reads Jack Lemon in the same way it would on, you know, a marquee for a movie theater. Rodney Dangerfield, very famously, had There Goes the Neighborhood put on his headstone. Mel Blanc, who did the voice of umpteen cartoon characters, had That's All Folks put on his headstone. Some people clearly tried to link their lifetime achievements. So, for example, the closing line of The Great Gatsby. So we beat on Boats Against the Current. That is what is on F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald headstone. All of these tie back to the idea that how do you take a line or a few lines and use it to capture the spirit? Um, again, poets do this best. So, for example, W.B. Yeats cast a cold eye on life, on death, horsemen pass by. All of these are relatively brief. They are not paragraphs. So we've kind of gotten away from that, you know, paragraphs about the life of the individual and everything they did and a laundry list. Now, granted, there are some fun ones. Um, a lot of them, though, I have to wonder if they really are just, again, somebody's reimagining the same way that Keats was. So if you read Jesse James' headstone, um, murdered by a traitor and coward whose name is not worthy to appear here. Of course, if you know the story of Jesse James, they're talking about Bob Ford, who supposedly shot him in the back when he was adjusting the picture or whatever. Some of those I'm a little bit more skeptical about. Like, is that actually what they wanted on the headstone? But it seems that today, the less is more approach is definitely more popular. Today, we're sandblasting things. So ironically, it is actually easier than when everything was carved by hand. But people still have seemed to have gotten away from that, at least from what I have observed. So what's the end result of this? What does this all bring back to us about this? Well, obviously, there is still a memorial impulse. The desire to memorialize individuals in words is still present. I think that as people live longer lives and as death is slightly less common, our epitaphs don't have quite the same verbosity because we don't, we have more time with people. That's not to say that people don't die suddenly today. They certainly do. But I think that the commonplaceness of death in the 18th and 19th centuries, coupled with the values of that society, led to that. Think about even, you know, Victorian architecture, Victorian clothing, design. Excess was the word there. And it's interesting that even with the Puritans, because death was such a central feature, they actually had to pass sumptuary laws that limited the amount that could be spent on funerals. The Puritans knew how to throw a funeral. 
I always get a kick in movies when I see these really spare funerals. It's like, oh, no, they had jewelry made. They had programs made. They did, they did the whole thing. They were just as into death as the Victorians were, just in a very different way. So I think that, you know, longer lives, shifting values, and ironically, mechanization of the whole system, the same way that tombstones all look the same now because they are mechanically produced, inscriptions tend to be a little bit more commonplace as well. And that's not to say that this is necessarily a bad thing. You can still express quite a bit from something that is very simple. So that's not necessarily me being critical of modern epitaphs. I think that they still have a lot to say for themselves. I think that people still come up, in my opinion, with very creative and really diverse examples. So you might wonder, what did I end up choosing when I went through? So I thought a little bit about it, and I thought about my grandmother and what I could say about her. And I confess, I discussed it with my mother. I discussed it with a couple of other people to try to get a sense that, you know, if you had to describe her in one line. And I knew one of the things I wanted to say was that she was a friend to all. But I will say my godmother, Beth, who is my mother's cousin, she came up with a very good line that I liked a lot. So I combined them. And she said that my grandmother was an incredibly giving woman. So I went with an incredibly giving woman and a friend tall. And I just wrote the check for it. And let me tell you, it was a painful check to write, not just because of sentimentality, but it is not cheap to get that headstone engraved. So if you're going to put the words on there, you got to make them mean it. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, hopefully you were enjoying the listening experience. I do have a very fancy new microphone. This is my first go around with it. So I'm still playing with the settings. Um, it's a little weird. I did tell you that my old microphone died. Um, so I'm trying this out. Uh, it is on loan. You do not want to know what I had to do to get this microphone. You would not believe it. No, actually you probably would. But uh, so I'm testing it out, seeing if I like it before I bite the bullet and buy one permanently. I'm going to try it out for a couple of weeks and fool around with the settings and see how I like it. But I appreciate your patience while I was switching out my equipment. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast, both Facebook and Instagram, as well, Tomb of the View podcast at gmail.com if you need to get in touch with me for anything else. I think I have caught up on emails, maybe not DMs on Instagram. I have been trying to respond to everything. I am finally, I spent two hours the other night just answering emails. So hopefully I've caught up. Um, if I have not gotten back to your email or your DM, I apologize. I, I am I am trying to get everything packaged up. So hopefully everybody has heard back from me at this point. Uh, and if you have not, you will in the near future. But for now, I hope everyone has a wonderful week. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View.